0: Sometimes when I am saddened by symptoms of the decay of the evangelical faith within Great Britain, which I am, I turn my eyes southwards and I see hope. I see new movements developing, uh, existing churches being revitalized, and many, many people becoming Christians.
1: It's what time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our deep conversations. Last week we began a conversation with British historian David Bebbington. He is most famous for developing, he says, discovering Bebbington's quadrilateral, which describes not defines the particular emphasis of evangelicals and it falls into four different parts. Number 1, the authority of the Bible. Number 2, the centrality of the cross or the atonement. Number 3, conversion or the idea that no one is born a Christian, you must become one. And fourthly, activism, both in sharing the gospel and living out social concerns. Our discussion started with two of the figures at the height of evangelicalism in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Dwight Lyman Moody, two of my most absolute favorite men in the Christian past. God used both of these men to shape a great deal of evangelicalism then that has had great ripple effects to our time now. Today, as our discussion continues, we move from the Native American reservations of Oklahoma to evangelicalism in the Global South, and what Dr. Bebbington, as a Brit and a historian, sees as some of the pitfalls for us here in the U.S., some of the threats and some of his hopes. But before we get to David... We wanted to give you some of the cool stuff going on at Apollos Watered. We got this note from Scott, who is a pastor and professor in Ohio. After hearing our conversation with Sam George, he wrote us. He said, wow, the Sam George interviews have challenged my thinking. I have always heard God didn't create all the denominations, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Dutch Reformed, etc. His comments changed my thinking to a large degree. There are other things he said that impacted me too, but I won't overload you in this message. Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you, Scott, for listening. Now, you know what's interesting is actually Scott sent me a second message. He sent me a message with a photo of several of Marcus Warner's book, Rare Leadership, strewn out all over a table. And he said this, this is your fault, LOL. You see, their entire staff is going through the book based upon what they heard on Apollos Watered. Thank you for listening, Scott, and may God bless you in your ministry. I love that. God is using Apollos Watered to help renew men and women serving in ministries around the world. And that can all happen because of you. We know that we can't do this alone. That's why we're asking you to become part of our watering team, one of our watering warriors, those who lock arms with us financially by daring to stand in the desert places of our world to bring the water of life in abundance. If you want to be part of our watering team, then go to apolloswater.org and click the support us button and know that you are helping renew leaders like Scott who are watering souls for Christ. And now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with David Bevington. Happy listening. One of the things that I don't think many realize is that evangelicalism looks slightly different in the different cultural contexts in which it finds itself. Let's just state these two areas British evangelicals and American evangelicals. What do you see as the similarities and the differences?
0: I would want to emphasize the similarities. I strongly believe that the movement begun in the 1730s was a movement that affected both sides of the Atlantic. That's natural. Uh, the American side would then, then consist of colonies of Great Britain. Those colonies were occupied by people who had direct correspondence with people back in Britain. When the Great Awakening first sprang up, Jonathan Edwards corresponded about it with congregationalists, members of the same denomination back in London. So well, there is a very close affinity And I do think that the movement was extraordinarily similar for the rest of the 18th century through the 19th century and to a large extent in the 20th and even the 21st centuries. I have to say, however, that there has been divergence over time. And I would see that the divergence between the movements becomes much more marked from the beginning of the 20th century onwards. In the 19th century before that, it was extraordinarily easy for people to move from one side of the Atlantic to the other and to have no no sense of significant difference between the expressions of the evangelical movement. After the start of the 20th century, there was, when British conservative evangelicals, those who wanted to sustain the core of biblical faith, went to America in the 1920s, they were alarmed by the degree of vitriol in the fundamentalist controversy. They felt that that was not what they were used to at home. And I do think that the fundamentalist controversy being much, much more potent in the United States and parts of Canada too, meant that there was a set of different attitudes that sprang up in America, which modifies the judgment that the movements are, are one. If you want me to be specific, one of the things that I quite like doing when I go to the States is attending as many Christian services as I can and taking detailed notes. I therefore have produced a couple of papers on evangelical sermons in late 20th century Britain and evangelical sermons in early 21st century America. Sorry, in both cases, America. And I've put together what I see in those movements. I sometimes wonder what people think when they see me taking copious notes and services, and I'm a stranger, but I find them extraordinarily tolerant. And I do have a large number of bits of evidence about similarities and differences there, because, of course, I do that in this country too. What do I see as being different? I, I think one of the things that worries me when I go to America is that there is much less intercession in most evangelical services. That is, prayer for people not associated with the church where the service is being held, not associated with the congregation there present, but outside it. There is less prayer for events in the wider world in particular, but also events sometimes in the surrounding secular society. Now with us, intercession will be regarded as almost a rigor. I have been to services and this is by being experienced in the fairly recent past where there has intercession has been deficient in in Britain. But I think there's a tendency for it to be left out even at really good evangelical churches to a far greater extent than I would wish in the States. Again, uh, I find the attitude to what some Christians of the states call the ordinances. Other Christians would call them the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper is, is very much perfunctory. Even believers baptism where in churches which practice it tends to be very brief and extraordinarily non-emphasized in Baptist and Pentecostal churches in the state. Whereas in Britain, that would be regarded as a major event, and it would be emphasised and with a culmination of, of a worship service, not hidden away at the start, as it tends to be in the services that I've attended. And the communion service, the Lord's Supper, is much less frequent in the States than it is in Britain. By and large, there are some a few churches, we do practice it weekly, but in Scottish Baptist churches, for example, and I'm a member of a Scottish Baptist church, communion is every Sunday. Now, that that degree of frequency is not universal in Britain in any denomination, although it's common in Anglican churches, but the contrast is really quite striking. In the States, I feel deprived because I don't have communion very often, and, and I regret that. Now... Okay, now that's been saying, okay, America is not like Britain, and that's sad. And in those respects, I do feel that. However, there are aspects of American evangelicalism that are much, much more potent and admirable than their, their equivalents in Britain. Especially in the south of the states, there is a willingness to appeal to the congregation to make decisions then and there. Those appeals are not unknown in Britain, but they're very rare indeed. And I do think that there are lots of occasions when it's entirely appropriate to make appeals for people actually to submit to the yoke of Christ and let them there. And I've seen that happen. I went, for example, to a uh, Native American revival service in uh, Oklahoma. About 15 years ago. And that service had a Shawnee preacher who was dressed up in Indian headdress and in- Indian armaments. He had shield and spear and so on. And he gave a remarkable revival address. The congregation consisted of two white people, the pastor of the church and me. And everybody else was Native American, not just Shawnees. In fact, very few of them were out there. At the end of that service, After that sermon, 13 people went forward. Okay. Many of them may have been for rededication. I'm sure that some of those were first time commitment. Now that I find out wrong. The legacy of revivalism, therefore, is much stronger in America. It is with us. And I admire that and um, hope that what's going on at Asbury at the moment will reinvigorate that tradition and make it live over the long term. So yes, there are significant differences and I think, as in most respects, America wins in some ways, Britain wins in others. I intend, in fact, um, at some stage in in my life to try and propose the creation of a new territory in mid-Atlantic where the best of both sides of the, the Atlantic are put into practice. And this will be true of the secular world so that, for example, we are windshield wipers will be required of all cars, <laughs> but also in the Christian world. And in the Christian world, there'll be lots of revivals, as well as regular communion and, regular, and, and more emphasis on baptism and more emphasis on intercession.
1: Where, where were you in Oklahoma? I'm just curious. I was taken
0: to a reservation, only about 20 miles, I should think, out of Shawnee. And I attended a service there. And I was also told by the the resident missionary, who was part of a succession of resident evangelical Quaker missionaries ever since the 1870s, that it was still his responsibility, not just to preach the gospel, but also to teach settled agricultural methods, which had been so ever since the late 19th century. He still did. The sad thing there was that, About 20 years before, I think it was, some years before, anyhow, there were people on the reservation who were translating the New Testament into the language of that tribe because the New Testament didn't exist yet in the language of that tribe. One of the missionaries actually ran over one of the children on the reservation and killed the child. And after that, all cooperation with Bible translation was stopped. So there is a tribe in the heart of the United States of America, which does not yet have the Bible in its own language. I found that very extraordinary.
1: The reason I asked that question is that my mentor was the first white man to be trained to be an Indian or Native American uh, medicine man. And then he gave his life to Jesus. And then he dedicated his life to reaching, he called them Indians. He's with Jesus now, but he worked in Oklahoma at the Native American Bible Ministries. He created a Bible camp at a Bible center. And he, more than any other person, taught me about culture. I'd never seen someone that understood how someone thought in forms that I didn't understand. Just as an example, he, he tells a story, and I've shared this before on air, where he went to a reservation and there was an old man sitting on a bench and he sat down with him and they, they sat together for eight hours and never spoke. He said the old the old man would nod and I would not I would nod back and and or he would point and I would point or and they would nod at each other. After eight hours, the old man spoke. And he said they had a pleasant conversation. And and the missionary who had been there, I'm not exactly sure of the period of time, but it was maybe two years, came over and saw the conversation. And then after the conversation was done, approached my mentor and he said to him, how is it that you got that old man to speak? I, I've been here for two years and I've never got that man to say anything but good morning. And he said, you don't understand the culture. You have to wait for the older to address the younger. And, and so he, he he actually would tell us about sports because he took us on mission trips. He took a lot of students on mission trips to Ringold, Oklahoma. And there he, he said, they'll play you in sports, but they'll never beat you. Or, I mean, they won't beat you by more than one or two points because they don't want to shame you. He said, if you play American baseball, he said, and you get two strikes and the third strike you're out, they will give you four straight balls to walk you because they don't want to shame you. So I learned so much about culture because he said, also in America, we think, or white Anglos, excuse me. He said, we think in threes, they think in fours. So I, I would learn just remarkable things about the development of the faith. And that, that leads to another part of this discussion. Uh, first is my my enthusiasm for thinking
0: in fours. Clearly, all good Native Americans will accept <laughs> because the uh, But that's a plus. I, I have actually done some work on the Seminole tribe in particular. I wrote an article on their reception of the Christian faith through the Baptists in the 19th century a few years ago. In order to do that, I've explored Seminole life a bit because they flourish in Seminole County, which is very close to Shawnee, where I go regularly. And the library at Oklahoma Baptist University contains excellent sources, written sources for this. The chief, in fact, of the tribe is now a Baptist minister, intriguingly, and he, as he fixed up for me and my wife to go to a Seminole church to attend when we were there back in November, which we very much enjoyed. I have been to a seminole church before that, a Baptist church, and attended the service, and I I enjoyed its distinctive culture. I especially enjoyed seeing pegs at the back of the church, and there were sticks hanging from them. And it was explained to me that these were deacon sticks so the deacons could go up and down the aisles and prod people who were falling asleep during the service. <laughs> so there are distinctive features of Seminole culture that I've come to turn to the two. I think that could usefully be applied in other churches too.
1: <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith, so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand it is fascinating to see how different cultural traditions just develop at my mentor's funeral he had a there was a blanket in the back of the sanctuary he was from chicago he'd married a woman who came from a mexican background who was mexican but his passion was always native american missions and when he passed away they put a blanket in the back because in the specific tribes that he worked with that's how you made your offerings is they would put a blanket and everybody would put their money on it, at least what he was affiliated with. And so I, I just found it fascinating. He he taught me a great deal about culture and appreciation for culture, which led to this other part that I wanted to talk about was global evangelicalism. We see global evangelicalism exploding, exploding around the world. What are the continuities as well as the discontinuities that you see developing? And I know that's a A very hard question to parse because it differs in every cultural expression, as you've already noted, between the UK and the United States. And even within the United States, it depends on denomination, affiliation, so many different pieces. But just to paint with a broad brushstroke, what are the the continuities and the discontinuities for our audience and who, who are looking at it very generally for them to see? And why should we embrace global evangelicalism, or global Christianity, as it were.
0: Sometimes when I am saddened by symptoms of the decay of the evangelical faith within Great Britain, which I am, I turn my eyes southwards and I see hope. I see new movements developing, uh, existing churches being revitalized, and many, many people becoming Christians. And one of the remarkable things is that there is has now developed reverse mission from the global south, so that in Britain, the fastest growing Pentecostal denomination is the Redeemed Church of God in Christ, which is the largest Pentecostal movement in Britain now. And that began in Nigeria only in 1952, and is having an enormous impact with authentic revivals regularly taking place. So I rejoice in the way in which the gospel is being sustained in my own country by influences from abroad. In terms of continuities, I do think that the evangelical movement in the Global South is the same thing that we are familiar with in the Global North. I did edit a book that came out last summer in July called The Gospel in Latin America, which is a set of lectures given at a conference under the auspices of the Evangelical Studies Program at Bailey University, which I coordinate even when I'm not there. And that conference had various speakers, Christian and less specifically Christian speakers, talking about aspects of the historical experience of the evangelical movement in Latin America. And the collection of papers gives a very rich picture of how the movement has taken root. And it is evident from all those papers that there are emphases on Bible, cross, conversion, activism in all the evangelical movements. Those are the continuities. They're the most obvious continuities. However, there are striking discontinuities. The most obvious one in Latin America is the huge strength of Pentecostalism vis a vis other traditional denominations. In most of the lands of Latin America, there are significant elements of the traditional denominations from, that is, the pre 1900 denominations that we are familiar with in the Anglo world. But the denominations that have taken root overwhelmingly, most strongly, are those of Pentecostal lineage reinforced by charismatic influences from the later 20th century. And I would see charismatic movement as being something distinct from Pentecostalism, but merging with it gradually over time. In the Pentecostal movement, (coughs) there are the same four emphases, undoubtedly. So the continuity is there. But the Pentecostal movement has its own distinctives. And those distinctives are apparent in many of the countries, many of the hugely growing churches in Latin America, most obviously in Brazil. And some of the emphases of those churches are matters that lead to church growth. Others are related to politics. And I have to say that I am a little more troubled by the political side. By and large, I warm to the religious side very strongly, Uh, but the political side has various Doctrines transplanted from movements in the States, which worry me a little. There's the teaching around dominion, for example. The the notion of dominion is what can be declared over any given area by proclamation, by the spoken word in some Pentecostal circles. And that leads to political mobilization, which I fear can sometimes be uncritical, and troubling and in the longer term, detrimental to the cause of the spread of the gospel. So I have worries about some aspects of the global evangelical movement as a result, actually, of producing that volume on the gospel in Latin America. However, I'd want to put the emphasis where you put it on the explosion in terms of numbers. And it's not just true of Latin America, of course. It's true of Africa that substantially Christian continent. is true of many parts of Asia, which we often forget. In many parts of uh, northern Myanmar, um, northeastern in India, there are huge Christian straight pockets of strength. Nagaland, for example, one of my favorites, Nagaland, is 85% Baptist. Now, that is a much higher statistic than in Alabama. And that's saying something. (laughs) So you have a Christian presence, not just Baptists, Presbyterians and Mizoram enormously strong. Korea, an enormously missionary orientated Christian country. Uh, There is a remarkable degree of Christian presence in many parts of the world. And it's growing. I'm very keen that that should be studied more and more, hence that volume that came out last year. I'm very keen that those who study it should transmit their message to uh, people who preach about it. I'm very keen that people should preach about it, because that's a real tonic to the spirits in times of decline in the, north, in the global north.
1: Oh, how But I am blind to the need right in front of me. Help me remember life rose from the ashes. Open my eyes to see clearly. Team with me, Jesus, to be what mentioned. Dominion being a British citizen, being from the UK, seeing the developments. Take place across the sea, especially right now, with what we see in, in in our country, in the United States, in North America. There's the rise of Christian nationalism, and there's been a lot of discussion about it: what it is, what it does. As someone that's looking at it from a, a different cultural viewpoint, what are your thoughts on it? What strikes me
0: when I go to America is how, despite the theoretical separation of church and state, It is remarkable how united religion and politics are. It is quite extraordinary. For example, when I was at Baylor University about 10 years ago, I was invited to a rally of those committed to uh, the cause of promoting life for unborn babies, if you will, an anti abortion rally. And that anti abortion rally was concerned with Christian things, and that was not surprising. Um, There were preachers there in abundance. There were hymns sung. But also, he was concerned with politics. There was a very definite message that at the next election, we must vote a certain way. Now, that degree of fusion of religion and politics is something that I am much less familiar with in the UK in the recent past. It was a common phenomenon at the start of the 20th century. and The people that I studied in my PhD were criticized for merging religion and politics. But I had supposed then that in America, because church and state were separate, religion and politics were separate. But no, they're not. And in some ways, that's symbolized by the very common presence in evangelical churches of the American flag. Uh, very commonly at the front, occasionally, as in one congregation that I've attended in the United States, in three places. Yes, at the front, also on the communion table, and also hanging down as a pendant from the ceiling above the communion table. So wherever you look frontwards, there's an American flag. Now, that does seem to me to be putting politics and especially commitment to nation as something which is more prominent than I would wish it to be as a citizen of a kingdom to come. I do believe in Christian citizenship in the present, but I do not believe that I want to have the Union flag in my church. Thank you very much. Well, you do see it in some older Anglican churches, but that's precisely because of the Union of Church and State in, in, in England. So that that's... The paradox of the separation of church and state coexisting with the integration of religion and politics troubles me. And it troubles me mostly when the Christian faith, especially the special Christian faith in the form that I would espouse, form of evangelical re- religion, when that is used as a sanction for political positions that I do not necessarily concur in and support political individuals that I have not wish to support. And that is common. And so, as an observer from the outside, that is my overwhelming impression. When that's been said, I have listened to many, many sermons in the States now and taken notes on them. And I very rarely, in sermons, hear particular political positions commended. Very rarely. I've heard it once or twice. In fact, I heard one instance where it was an assumption rather than a commendation. Only two months ago in December 2022 at a very conservative Baptist Church where it was assumed that we would have one political allegiance. but that was an assumption and no doubt the assumption was valid and it wasn't actually preached and very, very rarely have I heard a particular political position preached. Now, I'm not saying that our church uh, our churches in our country are innocent in this area far from it. And I shall be supporting the coronation of King Charles III very fervently in May. I do believe in uh, our, our political system. I'd rather like monarchs, actually. I'm very sorry about that, but uh, there we are. <laughs> 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 I don't want to say that our system's right, your system's wrong. Far from it. But I'm troubled by certain contemporary developments of the Christian nationalism you speak
1: about. Having attended so many churches in the United States and in the UK, and you mentioned just the sermons, how are they different and how are they the same? I know that it's it falls under the banner of the question I asked earlier, but I'm just very curious from your perspective, what do you see as the similarities and the differences? Okay.
0: In terms of similarities, there are an astonishing number of similarities, usually related to four factors, which it would be tedious to specify. Okay. But they are there. They are there. They are there. I do see, as in so many aspects of life, a greater willingness in the United States to embrace recent coming contemporary cultural trends. Thus, in America, it is now almost universal to illustrate sermons, not by references to literature, which was the pattern in the past, but is still the pattern in many churches in Britain but instead in America to appeal to films, allusions to that great film by, that film in which XYZ happens, in which P plays that part. An enormous number of illustrations are related to film. And that, I think, is related to the way in which in our day, largely, I think, because of the advance of the expressivist cultural moment that I spoke of earlier, the visual is supplanting the verbal so that people are used to films as providing their cultural norms rather than novels providing their cultural expression. So uh, I do see a difference there. Now, I'm not saying that reference to films are absent in Britain. They're not. We tend to follow America's cultural trends um at some distance. Or to be precise, in London, they tend to follow American cultural trends at a short distance. And in the Western Isles of Scotland, they tend to follow those cultural trends after 50 years. There are differences of, of cultural lag within countries, within ours. But, but there is that broad contrast. I think another broad contrast is in length. I think of the sermons that I have heard, the, there is a much greater average length in the States than it would be with us. When that's been said, my own pastor commonly preaches for more than 30 minutes. So he's an exception. But I think a survey was done fairly recently that suggests the average length of sermons in Britain was 17 minutes. The average in America. Ah! The average in America. I'm sorry. I distress you.
1: No, I'm I'm laughing because I mean, (laughs) my church would, would have killed for me to be at 20 minutes. I mean, I was 45 minutes to 50 minutes on average. There 20 minutes, I'm still in my introduction. So I I love to preach and I love it. I love it when a summer goes long, provided it's the content is engaging. I don't yeah, want to just yeah, say for yeah. the length of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um one of the things that I remember hearing, and I, I'd love to get your insights on this. I heard some men talking who are British citizens. Talking about the difference in this state. They were talking to an American about the difference between evangelicalism in the UK and evangelicalism in the United States. And one of the comments, a little bit in the same line of, of what you were saying, he said, You know, in America, many evangelicals have that political influence and political power. We lost that a long time ago. Therefore, we go about it differently now than you do. And how we go about it, because the culture in which we're living in is more, he didn't say hostile, but I'm going to use that terminology, or not as receptive, let's say, culturally speaking, to the gospel. Do you find that to be true, or do you think that there's needs to be a nuance on that?
0: The most important point to make in this area is the sheer difference in scale of the evangelical movements on the two sides of the Atlantic. In America. According to professions by individuals, there is a variation between something like 20 and 30% of the population who say they're evangelicals. Now, some of them don't go to church, which does seem rather peculiar for evangelicals. Are they evangelicals really? Well, who's to say, but they do claim to be. The equivalent figure is not 20% plus in Britain, but 2%. The evangelical community is tiny, roughly 10% of the scale of the American movement. Now, that's in proportion to the population. In absolute terms, of course, the American community is much, much bigger because America has a much, much larger population. So the difference numerically is hugely significant. British evangelicals cannot hope to sway public opinion on most issues at most times. The last occasion when they did was actually when Mrs. Thatcher was Prime Minister in 1987, when she introduced a bill into the House of Commons doing away with legislation restricting trading on Sundays. And the Sabbatarian feeling amongst the evangelicals, much stronger then than it is now, led to pressure on MPs in her own party, in the Conservative Party, to vote against. And the only occasion on which Mrs. Thatcher lost a major piece of legislation when she was Prime Minister was because of an evangelical vote on that Sunday issue, which defeated her. Now, Mm -hmm. since then, there's been no significant measure where evangelicals have obviously had a decisive role. Clearly, evangelicals have shared with other Christians in promoting, for example, the Jubilee movement, which led to the abolition of debt from certain two-thirds world countries to Britain uh, at the millennium, a very significant movement. The Evangelicals contributed there rather than being the decisive force which they had been in 1987. The situation in 2023 can be illustrated by an item in this morning's newspaper. I'm speaking in February and today, the There was discussion in the newspaper of the candidates for the leadership of the Scottish National Party and therefore becoming First Minister of Scotland, a very significant role. The candidates include several people, but one of them is Kate Forbes, who is a committed member of the Free Church of Scotland and an evangelical, therefore. It is thought by some commentators in this morning's paper, that that will rule her out of getting the leadership. Several commentators have acknowledged that she is head and shoulders above all other candidates. I think she is. She has been the finance minister in the Scottish cabinet for the last couple of years and done extremely well in difficult times. She's also actually a Cambridge historian, which I think is a very great virtue. I think she has a a very strong qualification for being Prime Minister, for being First Minister. But her evangelical faith is thought to put her out of sympathy with contemporary um, Scottish cultural trends in the social sphere, and especially on gender issues. And those gender issues are now held up as a criterion of whether one can play a significant part in political leadership or not. And she is thought to fail by that criterion. Now, others are saying it's awful that somebody should be excluded by their belief from a position of political responsibility if they have the greatest skill, the greatest qualification. But I have a suspicion that that will prove to be a decisive factor in relation to her candidacy. She is a candidate. And if she were to become Leader of the party and First Minister, I would be absolutely delighted, even though I don't favour the disunity of the United Kingdom. I believe in preserving Scotland as part of the United Kingdom. But I'd like to see her as leader of the SNP. But I fear that because of these issues, that's not likely to happen. So there is that marginality. Evangelicals in Britain are marginal in a way that they're not in the United States. That's the reality.
1: You spoke my name and life began. Breath filled dust and sand Felt you in the cool of the night Saw you in a newly made sky What's been the greatest percentage of evangelicals in Great Britain at the absolute height? What would have the percentage have been?
0: The, the, the true answer is that nobody knows, um, that there have been no surveys of who was an evangelical by whatever criteria that had been done officially. The nearest approximation that one can get to that is attendance at church, which is not an exact equivalent in 1851, when there was a census run by the state of church going. It's the only time that's been done in Britain. It was abolished the following, at the following census. But the, in the 1851 census, that was done. And of the population, roughly 42% were found in church at, at, on census Sunday. And of that 42%, one can estimate that getting on for half were nonconformists who'd be overwhelmingly evangelical and a significant proportion of Anglicans would also be evangelical by that date. So of the 42%, one can say that say 25% of the overall population perhaps were evangelical in the middle of the 19th century. I'm pretty confident that was just about the peak of evangelical penetration of the British population. And that's virtually a quarter of the population then. So roughly the same as America is now, do you see, which is interesting. But that has declined markedly over time, partly because of the advance of broad church and high church tendencies within Anglicanism, partly because of the secularization process, which should be much more drastic with us than with you.
1: Do you count Anglicanism as a form of evangelicalism? No, I would say that within Anglicanism
0: there is a major evangelical party whose relative strength to the other parties, the high church and the broad church, has varied over time. In the past 50 years, under the leadership of John Stott, it has increased markedly.
1: But even then, the population, as you said, now is what, 2% of the population within the UK. But yet you refer to Prime Minister Thatcher's being her bill being defeated because of the Sabbatarians and the evangelical presence voting it down. What would have been the percentage of evangelicalism then?
0: Then it was only about 2.5%. It wasn't significant. Well, that's, that's what that's uh, 20% greater, but it, it was still a small proportion of the population. But what happened was that, that those individuals buttonholed their MPs, their members of parliament, in order to agitate on the issue. So that, that's how it was done. But a very important point here is that as church-going numbers have fallen, evangelicals as a proportion of Anglicans has increased, and evangelicals as a proportion of the church-going population as a whole has increased, so that the churches are more sympathetic to evangelicalism now than they were 50 years ago, even though the population at large isn't.
1: Is that rise due to the global influence of those countries that have been commonwealths or like Nigeria. I know you mentioned the rise of Pentecostalism. I remember hearing an urban missiologist, a man by the name of Ray Baki, years ago, he's with Jesus now. He would refer to this phenomenon going on where so many evangelicals and Christians were coming from other parts of the world, of of the United Kingdom, and coming back to Great Britain. And bringing a form of revival, or at least a resurgence, renewal, uh, some aspect. Is that what we're seeing today or what you're seeing in the UK?
0: Yes, uh, largely yes. It has been true for over a decade that a majority of churchgoers in London are black. A very large number are either themselves immigrants or descended from immigrants since the Second World War. And some of them are from Jamaica, significant proportion from Jamaica. But in the more recent past, a very high proportion come from Nigeria. And they have some of the strongest churches in London, but also spreading throughout the country. So that, yes, that's got a lot to do with it. It also has to be said that there are lots of, um, non-traditional groups who are founding small evangelical causes in many places up and down the country. These are churches that would have once have been called house churches. By and large, they're charismatic. By and large, they have young people as a significant proportion. They come and go, they, they tend to rise and fall with individual pastors. But there are a significant number of house churches. For example, a survey was done with the city of York about 10 years ago now, which showed that there were more people attending on a given Sunday, that type of evangelical house church. There were more people in those house churches than there were in Anglican churches in York, a cathedral city. And that type of small house church is very common and is not known about by the press and the other media. So the Christian presence is actually stronger than most official statistics and most official perceptions would suggest. But it is not in a position to exert strong social influence, by and large, let alone political influence.
1: At least not yet. But if that trend continues, it should. Uh, That is true. However, it has
0: to be said that the trend is not, as it were, firmly in place because a lot of the trends suggest that a high proportion of evangelicals, as of other Christian groups, are in the older age bracket. Now, I'm not entirely unsympathetic with that, because I quite like the older age bracket myself. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't be confident that the growth in the, for example, Redeemed Christian Church of God that I mentioned before, you can't be confident that that will continue to grow much bigger. It's chief allegiance has been amongst the Nigerian population, the ex-Nigerian population, those who have come to this country. And how far it will make the transition to getting a substantial proportion of the population to you know, a native form, as it were, is yet to be seen. So I think the, ju- the, v- the jury's out on that.
1: No more making excuses for my own shortcomings. It's time to take responsibility for me. Daughter of a king who's king of all kings. So, um, yeah, I've been top tier. you think that Pentecostalism is the form of Christianity going forward. They're already the, the fastest growing movement. And can you just, uh, uh, an armchair definition, if you will, the difference between a Pentecostal and a charismatic, because you said there was a differentiation between the. the de- you mentioned the Pentecostal denomination, but you mentioned a charismatic group and you separated those two. But forgive me if I didn't articulate that correctly, but can you explain that?
0: I would want to differentiate between classic Pentecostalism that began at the start of the 20th century in America, Britain, and elsewhere, and the charismatic renewal movement that became a significant force in the 1960s. Pentecostal movement was very strongly denominational and very strongly committed to traditional evangelical shibboleths, for example, abstinence from alcohol. For example, observance of Sunday. Charismatics were, yes, overwhelmingly evangelical, but not all. Many charismatics were Roman Catholic or Anglo-Catholic and some broad church people, the the Anglican Church. So they didn't have the same denominational allegiance, but they certainly didn't have the adherence to traditional social attitudes which one can sum up by that word shibboleths. By and large, charismatics had no hang-ups about alcohol and no insistence on sabbatarianism Indeed, they tended to glory in their freedom from both. And that meant that they had a much more flexible attitude to life in general. Furthermore, whereas the theological convictions of traditional Pentecostals had crystallized and are often defined in their theological statements of faith. Charismatics did not believe in that. They believed that truth is mobile and can often change over time, and they actually said that, and did not want to be bound certainly by the particular emphases. For example, the emphasis of several Pentecostal denominations in the States and Britain and elsewhere on the essentiality of speaking in tongues as a sign of the baptism of the Spirit. That that was never insisted on by charismatics. However, I would want to say that in many parts of the world, there has been a merger, a fusion of the two, because they clearly have an affinity in believing, for example, in glossolalia. So that in Australia, the two strands have become totally merged and are, are a single thrust now. institutionally the charismatic movement has been absorbed by not only absorbed by but a substantial part of it absorbed by the Pentecostals and together they're a very vigorous force so uh, although in origin they are very distinct and I've argued this in print they have come together especially during the 1990s and are very much more of a united force now in the 21st century I do think yes, that they have an enormous future, partly because of the natural affinity of some Pentecostal expectations with those of traditional groups, whether in Latin America, Africa, Asia, or wherever, about what religion is. The sense of the supernatural is much more strongly embedded in many continents other than those of the global north, and therefore the sense that Religion of a super, a strongly supernatural kind, such as Pentecostalism is, uh, is a natural thing to move to from traditional beliefs. So yes, and, and dear me, many Pentecostals in India, for example, that you've mentioned, are very prepared to sacrifice themselves for their faith. The Pentecostal missions in India certainly don't hide their life under a bushel, as I'm sure you, you will know better than I. And it's self-sacrificing uh, defense of the faith that spread the church in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries, and it's likely to do so in the 21st century.
1: So taking that into consideration, what do you see then, and let's start with the obstacles as well as the, the hope, I, I guess not the obstacles, what are the fears that you have going forward that you see or threats to the church going forward right now? There are many of various kinds. There are, in the present day, lots
0: of potentials for schism over gender issues. We've mentioned the condition of the United Methodist Church in America at the moment. And I think a lot of Christian energy can go into fighting your side in splits, which should be going into more obvious spreading of the gospel. I think that's one risk. I think another risk is emphasizing experience as some Pentecostals would, the denigration of theology. And I think that risk is there because all the, all the more there in our day, because of the shift from the emphasis on the verbal to the visual that I've mentioned, which is part of the broad cultural trend in Western civilization in our day. If you don't want to emphasize the verbal, you may think that doctrine is unimportant. And I'm troubled by many Christian bookstores in this country and some I've seen in the States, though by no means all, where there are lots of books on Christian living and none on Christian theology. That worries me a very great deal for the future. Theology is important for the well being of the church. In terms of threats, clearly major threats to the Christian faith, come from the state. And in many parts of the world in our day, the state is very hostile to the Christian church. That would be true in many parts of the Muslim world. Still, technically, Christians are not allowed to worship in Saudi Arabia, actually. It's simply not allowed, but it does happen, of course, in private. And there are other countries where, according to official statistics kept, especially in the States, religious freedom does is tending on a downward course rather than an upward course. There is also the risk from state authorities which favor one particular expression of faith rather than another. And that is probably most obvious in contemporary Russia, where there is an extraordinary fusion between the policies and stance of the government headed by President Putin and the stance of the Russian Orthodox Church under its Patriarch Kuril. I heard a paper on that at a conference only last month, which showed the intertwining is very, very strong. And hence, other Christian denominations, most obviously evangelical denominations, are regarded as marginal and often unpatriotic, and that is going on in contemporary Russia. That can happen as well in China, of course, despite the enormous growth of the church in China over the past half century, and it can happen elsewhere too. There is always a threat to the Christian church from the state. The state is depicted in Revelation as a danger to the church. It is like the, the, the symbol of Babylon is always there and it's over against the church, and that is true in our day. So there are some of the things that I think are troublesome. The advantages of the church are, of course, those that Christian leaders, Christian preachers have always emphasized. God is with us. The truth is is strong and will prevail. And I do believe that. I believe that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is in the church and empowering the church. And that means that there is growth, even in very difficult parts of the world in our day, often at it's most effective in the most difficult parts of the world, because it is still true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church.
1: One final thought as we conclude our time. What is the subject that most piques your interest right now that you want to write about or are writing about? As
0: I've implied by talking about my wife's biography, my wife interacts with my academic activities quite strongly. She has been prodding me for some years to write a popular book. I don't actually believe in writing popular books, but she wants me to write a popular book on why there are so many denominations in the Anglo-American world. I do find denominations, whether big churches or tiny sects, fascinating. and I've developed a degree of reading on many of them over the years, and she wants me to set this down in a book. So when we were at Baylor University last semester, she sat me down and insisted on taking dictation from me without my doing any preparation on the various Christian traditions that have marked the world over the last, since the Reformation. So I tried to do that, and she produced a typed up skeleton of, of chapters for this book, about 25 of them. So I now have skeletons on lots of traditions from Anabaptists to Tridentine Roman Catholics and everything in between, innumerable branches of obscure evangelicals who I really like digging out. And I'm trying now to clothe those skeletons in flesh. And that is something that I am quite keen on doing. My wife's even keener, so I'm constantly prodded about that every evening.
1: (laughs) Well, I look forward to reading that when that comes out. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you again for coming on the show. How can people learn more about you? I mean, besides your books, which are, are everywhere, how can people learn more about what you're doing and follow along? Well,
0: I'm sorry to say, but I would recommend my wife's biography, which tells, <laughs> tells people about who I am. If people want to read about some of my central convictions, then they will find those two books that I've spoken of on the evangelical quadrilateral, produced in 2021 by Bailey University Press, are are worth reading. Another thing they might like to look out for is conferences that we hold every year under the auspice of the Evangelical Studies Programme at Bailey University. There isn't anything on the website at the moment about next year's, but there will be a conference at the start of October on international evangelicalism with papers by people from many parts of the world which will produce a book eventually and this is an annual conference so they, they might like to look for that the website um i think information about that conference will go up um certainly by may the conference takes place in october and they'll find out about some of my concerns through that because i, I do act as coordinator invite the speakers and suggest their topics so that's another way in which they can keep up to date with my Thoughts such as they
1: are. I, I recommend that wholeheartedly to everyone who's listening or watching this online and hope to have you back again. I feel like we're just starting to scratch the surface <sighs> of so many different things. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy having this conversation to be able to dialogue about these very important issues about where we've been and where we're going. So thank you again. What
0: the- I would say on that is you cannot understand where we're going unless you know where we've been.
1: Totally. So everybody
0: must read everybody must read lots more history.
1: That's right. And that's what Good. one of the reasons why we exist. That's one of the reasons why we exist. So thank you again for coming on Apollo Watered. Thank you. That's a lot of time and territory we covered. I found the conversation fascinating. But if it's just interesting information, then it's not really watering your faith, is it? The question is, what do we do with it? Do we really believe, like Bevington said, that God is with us, the truth is strong, and will prevail? Does that mean we don't need to understand our time and culture? No. Paul clearly adapted the way that he preached the gospel depending upon his audience. In 1 Corinthians 9, he tells us he did, becoming a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. As he said, I have become all things to all people, So that by all means, I might save some. Acts gives us example after example of how we did just that. So here's my challenge. As Dr. Bebbington ended our conversation, he said that we can't understand where we are going without first understanding where we've been. So let's get really practical. Do you know your spiritual history? I mean, not only why you believe what you believe or where you learned it from, I mean, do you know who your spiritual ancestors are? Do you know why you you value certain spiritual truths over others? It is good for each of us to know that we're part of a greater story and that our spiritual ancestors passed the baton to us so that we might carefully carry it on in our time. The faith of our spiritual ancestors always must be articulated according to the landscape of their time. In other words, they had to run their race overcoming the spiritual obstacles of unbelief in the battle plans of the evil one in their own time. And their obstacles were most likely different than our own. Nonetheless, we must run the race in our time, drawing inspiration, encouragement, and even, if need be, warning, so that we might faithfully follow their example. Even though the spiritual landscape may be quite different. Apollos Watered exists to help renew the church, to renew faith. We want to help you so that you can water your world. It's up to you, up to all of us, to channel the holy discontent that we all experience so that the church becomes who we are supposed to be so that we are all pursuing Christ's mission together. That's it for today's show. I wanted to thank you for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review for this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And check out this conversation and so many others on our YouTube channel. I want to thank our Apollo's Watered team for helping us water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Watered. Stay watered everybody. And I'm on a roll